Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only and does not replace your own financial, tax, legal, or financial product advice. Hello Australia, welcome to My Millennial Money, Glenn James here, hope you're doing well, thanks for tuning in to the podcast today, I know you've got a choice and I do thank you for choosing My Millennial Money. A couple of things, this episode, I found it fascinating, so if you are interested in maybe adopting children or even starting a charity, this story kind of is wild and it's a blend of the, the two topics and uh, with Mark's experience overseas and a bit about his story. So I'm really uh, looking forward to getting this into your ears. And remember, just Google Forever Projects or have a look in the show notes if you are interested in the charity and wanting to get behind what they're doing. But secondly, if you uh, do listen to the podcast fairly live and on the fly, you would have realized that we've just announced our annual tour. So we're hitting every capital city except for Darwin. Sorry, not enough of you there yet. And we're going to have fun. We're going to bring you along. We're going to uh, give you an update uh, on the ground with what's happening in your capital city around property stuff. We're going to have financial advisors there and we can talk about changes that are happening in the money world and just hang out with you. We'll feed you. We'll drink you. And it's so important that you get out after the, the year that we've had last year, come along to a live event. And I honestly want to meet as many of you as possible as we fly around Australia. So you can get tickets, sortyourmoneyout.com forward slash tour. And I hope you get a lot out of this episode. Remember, we're on Instagram, we're in the Facebook group. And if you really listen to the show and you love it, I know I'm a needy uh, little biatch right now, but maybe you can leave a nice little review on Apple Podcast app. So thanks, friends. We'll see you soon. All right, let's get into it. I'm joined by Mark Domkins. He's actually the founder of Forever Projects, and he's got a fascinating story about how this came to light. We're going to talk about his story, his family story, and ultimately how something amazing came out of him and his wife's passion to basically adopt a child. Is that a fair statement, Mark? Totally. Yep. Yeah. Just that that initial drive and um, hope towards that that kind of value, yeah, that, that's kind of where it all started. Yeah, sweet. So, we want to get to the Forever Projects charity that you're actually running now, but take us back to probably the first time uh, in your life with your wife, how you were like, oh, we think we want to go down this adoption path. When was yeah. that? Uh, how old were you at the time? And did you have uh, previous children at the time? Just paint the picture for us. Yeah, mate. I would have been 26, 27. Uh, my first born was uh, Jackson and he was six months old at the time. And uh, that, yeah, we were just 
watching a documentary. He was six months old on the couch, sleeping soundly. And this, uh, my wife and I, Anna, were watching this doco on the state of um, orphanages in China. And these volunteers had kind of um, were trying to expose some of the human rights abuses happening in this space. So they kind of snuck cameras in and they were just showing these, exposing these rooms of kids that were like just in these chairs, you know, two, three-year-olds strapped to the chairs, not really giving any food and just basically waiting to die. Um, and it just blew our minds and broke our hearts. And we're watching the screen, you know, with one eye and then looking at our son sleeping soundly, a six-month-old baby, and just thinking, how's this right, you know? And um, so that was the first seed, I think, that was really planted in our hearts as to what if we were to kind of reimagine what our family might look like and uh, and do we have space in our hearts and in our home for um, kids who aren't as lucky as, um, as our son Jackson was, yeah. So you're 26, 27 years old-ish. At what year was that? 2020? We've been 2006, <laughs> 2007. <laughs> Sorry, I was giving you a, a wee compliment joke. Oh, mate, I've only I've just turned 40, so I appreciate it. Yeah, you're welcome. So 2006, 2007, uh, from that moment on the lounge and having those chats with Anna, what was the timeline to welcoming uh, your first adopted child into your home? Yeah, it would have been another three, four years from there. Right, um, okay. Between that initial, yeah. Yeah, and that's important to know because a lot of people might be thinking about adoption and it's not an overnight thing. Totally. And you can tell me to get stuffed, but primarily this wasn't a thing that you couldn't have children or more children naturally. Is that correct? That's right. Yeah, we um, at that moment we always had planned to – have more biological children, um, but this this idea of adopting children was separate to that. Uh, so we went on to have another um, child in two thousand nine, yep. little girl Jemima, um, and at that stage we'd started the Australian uh, adoption process and we'd investigated it domestically, um, and it was just a little messy. I don't know if you've had much to do or heard much about it, but there's a lot of red tape and bureaucracy, and um, and from there we started the intercountry adoption process, uh, and we were. You had to kind of be vetted by docs at that stage. Uh, now they're called facts, you know. And the idea was that they would kind of vet families on the Australian end and then connect them with the program internationally where you might adopt from. Um, so we're in that process for a couple of years. And even that went down a dead end. And wow. um, yeah, they at one point, I think we were in the, in the program for about two years. And uh, and that stage, our daughter was two. And they said, look, this, this program's on hold now. Um, we're not sure if it's going to reopen. And that was it. Mm. So end of end of 2009, we're left just thinking, you know, this is something we're passionate about. We've been pushing for this for years, and we're no further, we're no closer to our, you know, heart's goal than we were when we started. Yeah, and as at today, how many adopted children do you have? Three, three. Okay, so this yeah. is cool. So you've got five children. Uh, I've got six actually. Oh, have you? Got, hang on, did I miss one? You've got Jackson, Jemima. And we had a bonus when we moved home from Tanzania. Oh, <laughs> okay. Bit of a, and what's that child's name? Max. Max. And what are the names of your adopted children? Yep. It's Jabari and then Charlie and Shay and Charlie and Shay are twins. Oh, beautiful. Uh, yeah. And I think it's funny, like probably from this point of the conversation, we should just say your children now. Uh, and I just kind of mm. wanted to say adopted children just to really um, yeah, break, yeah. break that up for listeners. But uh, yep. so your parents have six children and I mean, it's just fascinating because uh, three of the children are not white. 
Yeah. And we can get into a whole other thing of how you've done that process socially, how they've been welcomed into your home and community. But you mentioned before that the Australian process was a dead end and it's actually heartbreaking that it is a dead end, but that's a whole other topic for a whole other podcast. But what was the story that led you to Jabari? Yeah. So, at that that point, end of 2009, start of 2010, we thought if this is something we're really passionate about, um, is this a story that we can, you know, really make our own rather than being at the at the mercy of the systems um, in our world? And and I'd actually, at the end of that year, just read this book about about story and uh, this this guy talked about how in story, a, every story is about a character that wants something but has to overcome some kind of conflict to get it. You know, you've got to kick the door down. And so, started 2010, my wife and I were just going for a walk and she's like, just out of the blue, why don't we move to Africa? And, you know, it stopped me in my tracks. And obviously, there's years leading up to this question, um, but I just knew that that was the right, the answer, the only answer was yes. And so, wow. um, so yes, straight away. Uh, and that, yeah, our Kids were four and one at the time, and um, six months later, we'd quit our jobs, sold our place, uh, got a job at an international school in Tanzania, and we moved there by mid-2010 with a four-year-old and a one-year-old. And I will add that yourself and your wife are teachers by trade and education. Yeah, I'm a, yeah, a maths teacher by trade, and she's a psychologist, so a school counsellor. Yeah, yep. great. And what was the process like uh, with choosing the country within the continent? Yeah, well, yeah, we felt really strongly about Africa and then obviously it needed to be a place that was safe, a place we could get work because we knew that we would be living and working for, for years probably to navigate that country's adoption system, um, one where the immigration laws and rules matched up with Australia's. You don't want to end up you know, going through a process, having children that are now yours and then not being able to return home if you want to. And Tanzania just ticked all those boxes. Uh, and, and, and I think even more than that, we, we'd stumbled across this organization in Tanzania that we eventually adopted from and uh, it was called Forever Angels Baby Home and their mission was family preservation and they believed the happiest day would be when there were no child, you know, no children at the orphanage because they'd kind of got ahead of the problem and kids were being reunited with their biological relatives. And so I think all of the, all those things kind of drew us to Tanzania and to that organization in particular, yeah. Wow. And I've just got so many questions I want to ask. So, you're in Tanzania, you've found Forever Angels and you think, hey, uh, and it's probably, quote unquote, very easy to adopt in Tanzania in comparison to Australia. But before you pull the trigger, did you have to consult any lawyers or anything on the Australian end for longer term plans? Yeah, so we talked to an immigration lawyer just to make sure that if if it was the case that we were able to foster and eventually adopt, um, that we would be able to immigrate those kids home, and um, and, and and that all checked out. But the the, the process that was the, the most difficult to navigate was the one in Tanzania itself. And there's been a lot of press, a lot of rightfully over the last decade around people, um, you know, like we were from the West moving to a developing country with good intent and a good heart. But, but the processes or the systems not actually being of enough integrity to really make sure that these children had no other option. And that's why we really believed that this organisation was one we wanted to go through because we didn't want to adopt a child that had biological relatives um, that could care for them. We, we believed that that would be their best option and then we'd be like a last resort. Just back with the, you know, Westerners flying in, uh, adopting mm-hmm. children and then leaving – 
Is the risk or has there been issues with human trafficking? Was that a, a big concern or literally just, no, there's parents here that can care for the children. They're just in their own, they've just got their own problems and poverty and whatnot that they're dealing with. Mm. Yeah, there's, there's not in 80% of the cases in Forever Angels, um, children can be reunited with biological relatives um, who are, of a, you know, that they're healthy enough and young enough to, to care for, for their kids. Um, it's, it's really important, I think, to stress that the system within Tanzania itself, the um, social welfare system, it, 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 it works. It's um, fully supportive of, uh, you know, a process that's full of integrity in terms of foster care and adoption if necessary. Um, but the problem is when people go outside of that law that's intact and, um, you know, whether it's an organisation or if it's an individual that believe that they're above the law, that they, you know, and there's often that kind of white supremacy that comes along with people coming from the West and thinking, look, I know what's best here, not this organisation, not, you know, mm. this this parent, but I know what's best here and it's best that this child would, would come with me. And um, that's that's a really toxic attitude that uh, it's great that it's had so much media, I think, in the last decade, certainly the last five years in particular, and you're seeing um, governments and and organisations really cracking down on um, stamping that out because it's, uh, yeah, it's adoption is the last resort. Uh, it should, family preservation should always be key. And for somebody who's wanting to adopt a child from Africa or Asia, and we can, we can speak about Tanzania because you've had most experience there yourself. Is there a process? Because I was going to ask you, what, what did it cost? But your response is like, it cost us everything. Uh, but like, does everybody have to move over? Does everybody have to get embedded in society there and then come back? Uh, do you know of people who have uh, visited, spent some time there, connected with children that do not have um, biological family available? Uh, mm. what, what's that type of process yeah, yeah. So in um, it's probably two parts to that. So the, the the system we were in in Australia before we moved, um, that's that's become better since we since then, since twenty ten, the last ten years. And so it's still possible to live in Australia and be vetted by the um, social services here, and then connected to an inter country adoption program in Asia or different parts of the world. Um, we've got I've got a friend at the moment who's going through that. So it's good to see some improvement in that kind of process on the. Tanzanian end. So, so that's definitely something that people could, you know, if they were um, felt strongly about this for whatever reason, that's um, an avenue they could explore. And there's a great lobby group that we're part of uh, called Adopt Change that's work, worked really closely with government to see that reform happening. But on the Tanzanian ends, uh, the culture, I think, shifted a lot in the last, well, certainly since we adopted in the last decade, where you're seeing far more families from Tanzania volunteering as foster parents and adoptive parents. And so, and that should always be the preference, right? If, if, if these kids are Tanzanian, if it's possible for them to stay in their country and within their culture, with their language, um, that's better than than not. So uh, for those reasons, we're seeing less and less international adoption through Tanzania. Um, there's some other complicated reasons for that in terms of like some rules changing around um, work visas and stuff. But yeah, over time, the number of people adopting from Tanzania has definitely decreased in the last 10 years, yeah. If there were three top things for families to consider uh, before adopting, just in general from your point of view, what would you say they are? Empathy is the first and foremost thing. So from the perspective of a child um, who you're adopting, even though in the longer term this may be in their best interests, 
and if it's, a, if it's an ethical system and a, and a really concrete process, then that should be, you know, adoption should only be the last resort. Um, but for that child to, to join your family, that, that could be a really traumatic experience because whatever they're used to, whether it's being brought up in an orphanage or in a foster care situation, that change, um, they've, they've made attachments to that. And then neurological pathways have started to form in ways that aren't consistent with, you know, the mum and dad nuclear family style thing. And so I think understanding that even though longer term it might be better for the child, again, if there's no other option, um, it's traumatic in the, in the short term and just be, to be prepared for that. I think secondly, making sure I think that because it can be quite a stressful process and it can really, you know, test relationships within, you know, like within your marriage or um, with if you've already got biological children, I think making sure you're not going into that situation with a with anything but a rock solid kind of family structure already. Um, if you're going in where, you know, there's, there's some stuff that's, that's that you haven't dealt with or that's hard, then that's going to be... Um, yeah, super, super stressful. And I think certainly from Anna's and wife's perspective, like there was that, that process was three, three and a half years that we're living over there. And there were so many highs and lows through that. Uh, and if we didn't have a strong marriage and, you know, it's best mates and they're in all those highs and lows, then it would have been so hard to navigate. So, um, yeah, they're the things that come to mind, I think. And what about uh, being financially uh, secure? Because you'd yeah. want to do that regardless of, you know, starting a family. I mean, you know, yep. money doesn't mean you can't start a family, but with adoption, I certainly believe that, you know, it's there is more of a process and you will yep. have time to be financially strong. Yep, agreed. And I think on top of that, um, thinking about the kinds of um, demands on your time and attention and energy as parents because these children will need to forge attachments that they probably haven't been able to make prior to coming to your family and that's going to need a lot of time and attention and energy that it's, it's going to need quantity time not just quality time and so if you're working you know 70 hour weeks and you're hardly that hardly around you know it's that reattachment has to cost something for you and um yeah, it's it's over, over a period of years so i think and that has money implications right you know if, if you've got a job where, where that there are huge demands on your time um thinking about what am i prepared to cut in mm. terms of assets and income to, to make this other choice, yeah. Uh, a couple of practical questions. How often, uh, COVID aside, would you take uh, your kids back to Tanzania just for cultural connection and all that stuff? Yeah, so we moved home end of 2013. Uh, then we, we were able to go back as a family for the first time in mid-2019. Um, that was mainly because, well, there's lots of factors there. I mean, you think about putting... Um, eight people on a on three flights to to africa 40 hours in transit it's um mm, no thanks yeah good luck <laughs> <laughs> yeah and really expensive obviously um but we also wanted to make sure that our kids are old enough for that for that um return visit to be really significant for them in reconnecting with the culture and that, that those parts of the, of the story um yeah that they they remember through our stories and through photos and so on but not necessarily through lived experience mm. um we also you know, fell pregnant. As soon as we moved home, we, we had a surprise sixth kid and we didn't want to be, you know, a year later taking a one-year-old over to, to Africa and, um, and, and I guess being distracted from the main point of that trip, which would have been for our kids to just re- reconnect. And not just our adopted children, but our biological kids. You know, our, our daughter Jemima was one when we moved there and she feels like she's African, you know. Mm. Um, she doesn't remember life in Australia before we moved there. And so it's a really important place for all of our kids 
it feels like home to them. Yeah. And practically, you know, do all the kids have the same surname? Yeah. Yeah. So, we uh, got citizenship uh, in, in early 2019. So, all of our kids of Australian and Tanzanian passports, our adopted kids. And even before we moved home, actually, uh, in the High Court in Tanzania, which is where you finish the adoption process um, and get the adoption order, that's where their names changed to, to Domkins. Yeah. Wow. Wow. I mean, it's just such a fascinating uh, story that that you, you know, one, moved to the other side of the world, two, <laughs> adopted uh, three kids. And I think three, the most fascinating part for me is their biological family. So, mm. they will grow up, uh, yeah. you know, family within a family. And yeah. I just want to say, I don't know, it's kind of weird, like, I want to say thank you on behalf of humanity for people like you because <laughs> the world is a better place because of, you know, your compassion, Anna's compassion, and also, you know, your first batch of kids' <laughs> compassion, you know <laughs> what I mean? Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, man, totally. it's, um, it's just yeah. wild. Uh, we're going to take a quick break and we're going to come back and talk about how you've managed to raise around a million dollars to take back to Tanzania. If you're after personal financial advice, don't get it from a podcast. If you would like help based on your own personal situation, head over to sortyourmoneyout.com. Click get help and we'd be happy to introduce you to one of our trusted advisors. Our panel of advisors, mortgage brokers and accountants work with clients all over Australia so they can connect with you wherever you are. That's sortyourmoneyout.com and click get help. So Mark, this whole uh, Forever Projects, uh, you moved to Tanzania, you adopted children, you raised your family in Tanzania. It wasn't the intent to move overseas and start a charity. It was just a no, byproduct and you saw a need. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, yeah, so I think at the, at the time that we were living there, Glenn, we saw um, this baby home, passionate about family preservation, starting to... Um, experiment with, um, you know, how do we keep any any child? There's a anytime there's a child who has a biological relative, um, let, we need to address nutrition because these kids are severely malnourished. You know, we might be talking about a, a six week old that's 1.4 kilograms or something like that. Um, but how do we make sure that those biological ties aren't severed? And um, so address nutrition, and then identify what business they could help set the biological family member up with and whether it's the mother who wasn't able to lactate or it might be that the mother had passed away and a grandmother was looking after the child if, if the grandmother was in, in the state to be able to do that or an auntie and so they started just experimenting with um doing this just ad hoc and and started to see really great results um and so we're kind of living there watching this experiment start to unfold and then as we're talking to our friends amy's the founder of this organization she said this is starting to work um our budget's four thousand dollars a year for this um we could really scale this up. And so that was the seed I think that was planted in our hearts as well, um, thinking, all right, well, this this problem they're trying to solve is really deeply connected to our family's origin story, right? And, and mums like our kids, biological mums, um, shouldn't ever need to be in a position to make that tragic decision. And so we started just thinking, how can we raise money um, mm. to make it happen? Yeah. And, and in Tanzania, what is the main type of export for that country or is it known for a certain thing? You know, I honestly don't know much about it. And after this episode, I'll probably be going to YouTube and going, Tanzania, tell me about it. 
Yeah. Yep. There's um there's a ton of uh, obviously agriculture, and so a ton of export into um, the East African community with you know maize and sugar and all that sort of stuff. Um, there's a lot of mining that happens. You've got the Rift Valley that runs right down through the western side of Tanzania, so a lot of gold mining, um, offshore oil and gas. Tourism is massive. Um, we've got the Serengeti, Mount Kilimanjaro, so a lot of um, I think it's like ten percent of their GDP comes from tourism. Um, so, do, do you feel safe as a tourist? Uh, because I know that you spoke about safety before, and there's certainly parts of any area in the world that uh, you know aren't safe. But were you safe? You know, going around in parts of that country? Yeah, yeah, totally. Yep. Yeah, and I think I think um, safe by using common sense. You know, if you've got a an iPhone or a you know SLR camera and you're wandering around a, a local market, then you need to have you know an expectation that someone's going to see that and think you're tempting someone beyond what they should be tempted to, you know, like mm. what, what if someone sees that and takes it, that might provide a year's income for their family. So mm. just being sensitive to the places you're at and, and just, yeah, being, being on their level. Um, yeah. So like, I think another really important thing that helped us with that was like just becoming fluent in Swahili really mm. quickly when we moved there. Um, so we just, uh, I was a math teacher, so I was kind of teaching the kids maths, and now teaching me Swahili. Half of our kids in our class were Tanzanian, mm. um, and that that language um, fluency really helped remove so many of the cultural and, um, I guess, perceived safety barriers that were there. And as soon as you could actually not speak tourism Swahili, but actual conversational, um, that that just made you feel so comfortable and safe. Yeah, living there, being white, did it change mm. your perspective? of racism and thinking of back home with people that aren't white in Australia. Yep. Yeah, definitely. I think um, being aware of what it would like, what it would be like to be the minority in a culture, that's not something I'd ever experienced before, but um, making a decision to not just live in Tanzania, but, you know, actually we'll just hang out with the, you know, the expats and all sorts of stuff that properly engage with culture. Um, Mm. You know, you'd be in the market and doing the shopping for the week with fruit and veg and you look around and you're the only white person there. Yeah. Um, and so all eyes on you uh, and, you know, not from any kind of, you know, reason other than just, oh, he's a, he's a white guy in the market. You know, it's just like anyone looks at anyone that's a little bit different. And there's no judgment there. It's just that's, that's, that's how it is. Um, yeah. I think that was really healthy for me to experience because – uh, now, when I think about our kids back here, and we live in Wollongong, it's pretty multicultural. Um, but I've got some small sense of what it's like for them to be in a country that's predominantly white, um, and they're they're black, they're Tanzanian. So yeah, yeah, that was that was really good for I think good for for us as parents to experience. Yeah, I, I think anyone uh, living in you know I'll call it middle class white Australia. Uh, mm. You know, I personally, you know, I I've been to you know. Indonesia, like I've been to Surabaya, out two hours from Surabaya in the middle of nowhere. Mm-hmm. And just that experience of being around a com- complete immersion of another culture that mm. isn't white European, that mm-hmm. speaks English Australian. I think mm-hmm. that just does wonders for your own, I don't know, a- acknowledgement and appreciation of the world and people. We're all actually the same. So totally. If if you are listening and and you haven't had that type of experience, well, maybe Tanzania is on your next plan after this COVID thing's over. Uh, Because I, it's it's funny. 
I'm definitely, and I might talk to you more throughout the year, but I'll definitely love to do a, a trip to Africa one day. Um, mm. I haven't really had a desire to only because I just haven't had an opportunity. Mm. And I think I like these type of connections because you just don't have, you just don't know where it leads, right? Hundred percent. Yeah, and and yeah, and and so that's certainly true of you know friends and family of ours, and even you know people in the Forever Projects community since then who have gone and visited Tanzania. That's it's been like an excuse for them to go. I've never thought about going to Africa, or I've always wanted to, but never had a an in, you know. And yeah. um, and and people who have travelled extensively will say it's one of the best experiences of their life. Um, there's something. Yeah, people say it's like like a drug, you know. When you when you go and visit Sub-Saharan Africa, it's like something that's just not 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 very. Um, it's in scarce supply. Let's yeah, say that. yeah. And yeah. in Tanzania, and particularly around the towns and villages that you were living, uh, what do you think the biggest need is? Um, and I've just written down a few things. Was it food, education, shelter, health, work? Like, can you rank a top need that that community? really needed i know you mentioned um yeah. nutrition before but anything else that comes to mind yeah i think definitely definitely nutrition so that um they've made a huge headway in infant mortality rates but still one in 18 children will die before they're five um in that country and so you think about a kindergarten class um you know with more than 20 kids it, that that kind of statistic boggles the minds um and the reason for that's just simply that you know if, if a mother wasn't able to lactate in australia she would get formula milk or some other, you know, supplement nutrition. And, you know, if we walk down to Woolworths this afternoon to get a tin, it'd be, you know, $30 for a tin. You might need two tins a week for a, for a newborn. Um, but in Tanzania, that will cost your, your the average Tanzanian their entire week's wage. So it'd be like an Aussie going down to Woolworths and paying $1,100 for one tin of formula milk. And so that that inability to, um, to, to, to feed your own child, it just provides – or creates an instant obstacle um, mm, mm. that's insurmountable for most Tanzanians. So I'd say nutrition is the main um, one we we're aware of, certainly in terms of the, the work we were connected to. Yeah. yeah. Now, Forever Projects, uh, that name became about, I would imagine you were inspired by Forever Angels and, you yep. know, teed on that uh, and kind of worked on that wording. When did you start the actual charity and have it registered as a charity in Australia? Yeah, we, we kicked off in 2015. Um, My Millennial um, Money is a great space to, to share that we decided we'd use a, um, a local music and um, arts festival called Yours and Ours Festival in Wollongong. And um, that was our launch party. We thought, let's install a replica of a Tanzanian market right in the actual festival. So people would kind of just wander in and just get lost in the alleyways and the fresh fruit. And, you know, like we actually decked it out properly to feel like that. And then, you know, we were committed to using story and art and creativity to to draw people into the to, to the change and that was possible rather than using guilt or anything like that. Um, so 2015 is when we launched. 2017, we were properly registered as a charity with the, um, yeah, getting DGR status, so tax flexibility and, and so on. Um, but the we, we actually started raising money, you know, even back when we were living and working in Tanzania. And I think the idea that was really crucial to kind of evolution of forever projects and, and really why we believed it, that could exist in the first place was um we we were coming back to australia for a visit in 2012 i was just coming back with my eldest son um we couldn't all come back because the adoption process wasn't done and we thought we've got to raise some money for this project that's expanding over there um so we had 60 friends and family come to a cafe 
and just decided let's use beautiful photography and storytelling, um, deck the cafe out like an art gallery and let's invite our guests to just consume these stories and then give as they feel led. And that night we raised 16 grand and connected, you know, 100% of that obviously I was able to take back to Tanzania and give to the local teams at Forever Angels, so which quadrupled their budget and they were able to put that back to work. And then the year later we were able to run another one of those fundraisers in Australia and really on the walls this time with the stories of where the money from the previous year had gone. And so I think, Glenn, that cycle of you, you commit to storytelling, inspire the right people to, to become part of this and then connect them with what their generosity has done, that was the, the kind of feedback cycle that really helped us go, this could be more than an annual event. And, mm-hmm. um, and that's really what Forever Projects is. It's just this ongoing cycle of a community of people we say everyone's got something in their hands, you know, you've got a podcast and you're generously using that as a platform for us to share our story today. But yeah, we, we love connecting people who are generous with what's in their hands and saying, because of you, this change was possible in Tanzania and we want to tell you about that. Yeah. And I guess, you know, there's thousands and thousands and thousands of people that are listening to this. I would say if if something in your heart or soul has been stirred with this fascinating story and you don't have any money, right now to contribute to Forever Projects, jump on the Instagram, follow Forever Projects, share a Mm -hmm. post, get involved in the actual story of what Mark and the team are doing because one day you might have five bucks that you can contribute. You might have $500 that you can contribute. So, I would really encourage everybody, giving needs to be part of your financial life. Uh, Mm. And I don't know if you know, Mark, but- um, you know, we support A21 as a charity on mm. this podcast because, you know, I'm really interested in the human trafficking piece and also uh, The Life You Can Save uh, by Peter Singer. I don't totally. know if you're familiar with the book and yep. and his work. Um, and correct me if I'm wrong, Mark, I like mm. the idea that you've got a portion of your uh, charity set up. So, if someone was wondering about administrative costs, they can give to a pool of money that 100% of their donation goes right to the field. 100%. Yeah, that's right. So, we we identified early on that, you know, a big reason people wouldn't give to charities, especially international ones, would be, you know, questions around admin, how much of money is actually going to reach the families in Tanzania. And so, we took those families that had come to that first fundraiser, those first 60 people, and, uh, you know, they were some of our closest supporters. They'd seen us growing over the years. And we said, what if you guys fund our Aussie operational costs, costs of fundraising, marketing, staff, storytelling, um, so that if someone listening, Glenn, was to go, I'm going to give 50 bucks today, um, you know, we'd lose a dollar, what, 40 in e-commerce fees. Mm. But those, those, that group, we call them our core supporters, they'll make up the dollar 40 um, and they'll pay for that so that every – you know, dollar of your 50 bucks will reach Tanzania because we, we know that people, when they're given 50 bucks, they intended that to go to that cause. And so, that business model has been really important to, um, I guess, provide transparency and enable us to come good on a promise that, um, yeah, change is possible and you're making it. Um, yeah. yeah. You're, not lining our pocket, you're not lining our pockets or paying for brochures or, you know, photocopying or anything like that. Yeah. yeah. And it's just so important. I mean, uh, in this day and age, there is so many uh, loud noises for your dollar and I just think, you know, you have to look at where you're sending your money to uh, because we all want bang for our buck. And totally. Yeah, so I'd really encourage everybody, um, jump on Forever Projects on Instagram and if you want to set up a, a monthly thing, I'm sure uh, the team have got a platform uh, for yep. you to do that. Now, 
Tell us about the team. How many people in your team? And, you know, you're currently a maths teacher. Yeah. Oh, yep. how bloody boring. But anyway, tell oh, me. Oh, you're in finance. <laughs> <laughs> no. Well, I'm a guy in finance. I'm not a finance guy. Trust me. Um, <laughs> uh, tell me your own long-term plans. Like, is the Forever Projects going to always be a side hustle or do you want to build the operational side of the business so it can support you as a CEO longer term or your wife? Yeah. Yep. Yeah. So currently our team's quite small. I've got myself, um, I work two days a week for Forever Projects, um, you know, as, as the founder of the connection with the team in Tanzania and just looking at overall, how do we, you know, what's our strategy and how are we going there? And then Ben, my great mate who uh, joined us early on, amazing creative director, everything that you see about us, you know, the brand, the feel, the messaging, the storytelling, it's all um, just it oozes out of him. It's in his DNA. So that's our core team. Um, and then we've got some amazing contractors that we um, that we have part of our team. So videography, copywriting, community manager. Yeah, but we during COVID we just thought let's make sure we've got a, our core team in, intact, and then um, we can build a team around that. Hopefully, one day will become um, part of the staff. But we need to just make sure we're, we're not being um, ambitious. You know, given the, the state of the world at the current time. Mm. Um, I think in terms of my own goals, I think I've been really reading and reflecting a lot on, um, you know, different books from CEOs and leaders and founders and, and, and often an obstacle um, you see is that people struggle to separate their own ego and identity from that of the business that they've created. And so I've been really trying to think about what is it that Forever Projects needs and what are the people that it needs at this different stage, you know, particular stage of its journey. And if that's me in a greater capacity, that's fine. What we're actually looking at at the moment is um, – and how we connected is marketing. You know, we've grown really through peer-to-peer and organic, but we know our story resonates with people. How do we use media strategies and digital marketing to reach audiences at scale that um, would resonate with us? You know, if mm-hmm. they heard our stories. And so, it's important for me at the moment to be deploying a lot of resources into people who really understand and can you know amplify our message that way. That's that's not me. You know, if I was to work full time, I'm useless with marketing. Um, so, yeah. So I think it's really trying to have a conversation with the organization as it's growing about what it's trying to do where its capability gaps are and how we can you know that's my key role i guess is to how to to find the resources and the talent to Mm. to help it go on its next next stage yeah yeah no i wish you all the best that sounded very like nonchalant like whatever that is (laughs) yeah i wish you all the best but i i generally like (laughs) it's such a big endeavor and this is the whole thing like people get this idea in their head, I want to start a project or a charity and they run out and do it and raise all this money and two years later, you've lost interest, it got hard, Mm. where for you, it was actually, it came out of what you were living and I'm confident to say that um, the government do not give out uh, deductible gift recipient uh, tickets to nobody and it's- you've got the track record of going, you know, into the sixth year of mm-hmm. or seventh year, whatever it is now. Uh, what is it, mm-hmm. six or seven? You yeah, know? since since um, we launched sixth year and since we got that, uh, yeah. So, you've got longevity. So, we know that it's happening. Um, yep. And I looked at you on the Australian Charities uh, Register and saw that it was all above board and legit because I don't want – you know, any dodgy person on this podcast. There's, you know, I'm, I'm the dodgy person enough for the whole show, right? So, um, but yeah, so you've you've managed to raise, you know, around a million dollars and send that overseas, and it's just amazing. 
Yeah, yeah, it's it's it, we pinched ourselves when we reached that milestone last year, and it, it really it, it corresponded with a more important milestone, which was more than a thousand babies um, and their caregivers that had come through the project since they first started experimenting and and really you know forming it up as a proper program in mm. um in 2015 and so that's a, that's a thousand kids mm. who didn't need to be abandoned and whose biological relatives are caring for them and you know when we left the orphanage the day we started fostering our three we, we looked around and there was 57 other kids who weren't going you know that that day they weren't going to a family and um heartbreaking so that, that, mm. you know that that's the thinking about that now you know there's less than half of those kids that are there there's consistently less than 30 um mm. children in the baby home there used to be more than 60 so we're really seeing that lag measure of abandoned children and malnourished children dropping because the system and culture is changing um not and not just in the city that we adopted from it's now scaled to three other cities across the country so it's, yeah um, yeah there's plenty of plenty of work to be done but um yeah we're, we're definitely yeah, we're, we're ambitious. <laughs> yeah, no, no, that's good. And I was just looking, I've, I picked up my phone before because at the time of recording here um, today, like it's, you know, three o'clock local time in Sydney right now, it's yep. 7 a.m. in Tanzania. So, it's a very workable time zone. Mm-hmm. It is totally, yep. Do you yep. have, how many like people on the ground in Forever Projects? Well, I guess for each of the NGOs that deliver the program, um, they all have their, their kind of key service they're providing so sure. um, or the, the the service they started with so for forever angels it was a baby home mm. and then they've got this social franchise of keeping kids with families empowering um caregivers tacked onto that and so difficult to kind of answer how many yeah, because yeah. There's some both yeah um but it's really important i think for listeners and for everyone to understand that the the work's being done by locals um mm. and and led by locals and and the founder of forever angels who started it in 2006 she and her team are the ones that are kind of navigating the course there and where it's going. Um, we're simply saying, let us take the fundraising and storytelling marketing burden off you. Um, yes. Yeah. I've got no place <laughs> as a white guy from Wollongong, um, you know, thinking about where they might, you know, scale to next or whatever else. I just, I just want there to be a, a, a mm. definite, you know, consistent amount of money for them when they, when they want to, when they need to. Yeah. And um, just for the whole charity corporate governance thing, Mm. Like, I trust you've got a board for the charity? Yep, yep. And, and who's on the board and what do they do? Yeah, so we've got um, a traditional board, which is kind of uh, the people who started Forever Projects back in well, 2017 when it was registered. And we're just now starting to, we've been looking at how startups grow and what the board structure might look like. And um, what we've seen, we've really liked is seeing an advisory board built in and around that traditional board. So you build in advisors with key capabilities that your existing board members don't have. Mm. So it might be, um, you know, in the not-for-profit sector, PR, marketing, um, production in a way that's adding or I guess supplementing those gaps in your current team. So rather than trying to move previous members off and bring in new people, it's more surrounding that existing team mm. with, um, with experience. Um, the other thing to know is we... Even before we got tax deductibility status, we um, we started partnering with an organisation uh, called Global Development Group, um, and they have projects all around the world that um, often like small scale projects that people from Australia have wanted to give to. Mm. And so initially, we were sending our money to Tanzania through those guys, and they have like governance, auditing, auditing the compliance requirements for an international charity. They're all over that, and um, and so we've kind of we're contracting them to make sure that that important part of our work is done by someone 
way better than us um, because that's not our expertise and we don't really have an appetite to get to know how to do it. <laughs> yeah, and have you um, have you seen many of the resources from the AICD? Yeah, so that that they flow through that organisation. Yeah, well. great. Yep. Yeah, yeah, yep. and for those wondering, uh, AICD's Australian Institute of Company Directors. Uh, I'm a member of the AICD because um, it's just good to keep on top of that corporate governance um, part of the world. I find it fascinating. We might leave it there. But what I was thinking, Mark, um, depending on uh, feedback from this episode, and this is me just totally thinking on my feet live on a podcast and it will annoy <laughs> my team, but I'm thinking maybe what we could do in the coming months or whatever, if there is enough mm-hmm. demand, maybe we could do some type of webinar or little mm. event that is a, an adoption Q&A. Mm-hmm. and we can plug in forever projects to help bring that to people or something like that. And maybe we can talk offline uh, yeah. because I know it's a, there are genuine people who genuinely have been thinking about the adoption story. And mm-hmm. I think it would be valuable um, just, and if you know other people that might be able to come on the webinar, it doesn't have to be you or your wife, but just as a general uh, Q&A, these are our experiences yeah, totally. Yep. And I think, as I'd said, the um, the two things we were passionate about when we moved back were how do you kind of reform, you know, legislation in Australia to make sure that the best interests of the children who are vulnerable were, were being met and um, the lobby group that I mentioned, Adopt Change. Um, I mean, if it, even now, if any listeners are interested in foster adoption, um, if you jump on their website, they've got an amazing list of resources and great team that know way more about the current um, well, and, and maybe we could, um, if there, you know, I think it's um, it'd be a waste of all our time to do this for three people. But um, if there was, you know, a decent amount of people that wanted to do it, maybe you could tee up a representative from uh, that organisation who's just current on the. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Very interesting. Yeah. All right, Mark. Thank you for sharing your story, and I'm sure you'll be hearing more from uh, from both of us at some capacity in the my millennial world because I just find it fascinating and just since we started talking and then I met someone randomly at a live event on the Gold Coast who said he grew up in Tanzania who was at oh, one yeah. of the my millennial events it was because I was I was like I was actually sharing to the so when we do live events we kind of tell people like oh this is what's coming up in the podcast and um, yep. last fortnight when we we're doing the live event I said, yeah, and I've got this cool guy, you know, they moved to Tanzania, they adopted children and blah. And then this guy came up to me, he's like, oh, so weird. I grew up in Tanzania and he wow. was Swedish and um, yeah. now living on the Gold Coast. So, yeah, uh, small world. And um, yeah. yeah, I'm just fascinated to see maybe what might happen with my travel plans once COVID um, settles mm. down because I would like it for my own personal growth and development to visit Africa. Um, yeah. Oh, it's um, yeah. It it it's definitely it's it's people and the culture s- somehow teach you something oh, that you it, can't can't learn. Absolutely, you know, in many other places. Yeah, and maybe I I mean I'm just thinking, and we probably should press stop in a minute. But everyone's here now, and they're listening anyway. Like I'm just thinking, like longer term, what if we organise like a my millennial money trip to check out some stuff. Yeah. In Africa. Yep. And we get some listeners and we all go, I don't know. I'm just, 
Anyway, it's going to get dangerous if I start thinking on the fly. (laughs) So, Mark, thank you so much and uh, we'll see you soon. Thanks, Glenn. Really appreciate it. We acknowledge the dark and young people, traditional custodians of the land on which our studio sits and pay respect to their elders past and present. We extend that respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples who may listen to our podcast. My Millennial Money supports A21, a charity focused on abolishing slavery and human trafficking all over the world. Check out a21.org.au for more info. If you would like some other giving options or if you're unsure about which charity you can support, head to thelifeyoucansave.org.au. This podcast is for education and entertainment purposes. Any advice is general financial advice only, which does not take into account your objectives, financial situation, or needs. Because of that, you should consider if the advice is appropriate to you and your needs before acting on the information. If you do choose to buy a financial product, read the product disclosure statement and obtain appropriate financial advice tailored to your needs. Simo Interactive, Proprietary Limited, the publisher of the podcast, is an authorized representative of Money Sherpa, Proprietary Limited, which holds financial services license 451289.